This is Sit Rap on DFPS. Hello there, I'm Tim Cooper. Ceasefire in the Ukraine, but for how long will the guns stay silent? Syria, Assad talks, but what's he actually saying? The Archbishop of Erbil tells us Britain's not doing enough in the fight against Islamic State. And is it red tape or politics that's stopping the military covenant from being formally recognised in Northern Ireland? A ceasefire has been agreed for eastern Ukraine. The Russian president, Vladimir Putin, said the truce would start at midnight on Saturday. The announcement comes after talks overnight between the Russian and Ukrainian presidents in the Belarusian capital Minsk, brokered by the leaders of France and Germany. I'm joined uh, by the BBC's diplomatic correspondent, Bridget Kendall, who's uh, on the line in Moscow. And here in the studio, our defence analyst, Christopher Lee, is with me. First of all, let's begin with you, Christopher. Can you explain to us what each side wants? One of the difficulties is the long-term wanting. That's 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 particularly important. I mean, a lot of people sitting there saying in, in Whitehall uh, last night when I was talking to them, saying we still don't know what Putin wants in the long term. But if you think in this in this way, there are really, I suppose, four groups here. There's the as Ukraine itself. What does it want? It wants uh, well, basically the the status quo ante in in a way. Uh, but they need to sort of you know, get the, the territory lined up. They want prisoner exchange. They want concessions as well. And in, in some ways, the EU has got a part in this. That wants the same sort of thing. Let's go back to the beginning. Let's say this is one country, you know, the biggest country in Europe, um, and then we work from there. The rebels, they'll say, no, we want to have, uh, a, a, in the long term, some autonomy um, o- over the areas that we actually have fought for. And then the Russians, and there we have the great problem again. What is Putin's long-term ambition? But fundamentally, they're saying, look, we are here. These people speak Russian. They are part of us. um, And that's what we want. Bridget Kendall, you're joining us from Moscow. What have they actually agreed on at this Minsk meeting? Well, it's, it's not dissimilar to an accord which was reached last September, which didn't hold, which has, of course, immediately made people very sceptical, saying, well, why should it hold this time? But it centres around a ceasefire. That's the most important thing, as you said in your introduction, which is supposed to come in on Sunday. And then uh, from there, uh, a demilitarised zone, which has been defined, which will mean that both sides will have to pull back their heavy weapons and their military formations. Um, And then there are other related uh, commitments, including a monitoring and verification of the ceasefire regime, um, regulation that the Ukrainian parliament is supposed to make to start having political reforms to give a special status to the rebel areas, uh, prisoner exchanges, there's talk of amnesties, um, and um, then we come on to other slightly more tricky things. For example, what happens to the Ukrainian-Russian border? This is really important for the Ukrainians. They want to seal that border so that the Russian troops and heavy weaponry they suspect has been pouring over in the last few months to shore up the rebels can't do that anymore. Um, they're supposed to take control of that border by the end of 2015 if various other things happen, including, for example, the lifting of their economic boycott of the rebel regions so that um, these people in this part of Ukraine get access again to the Ukrainian currency, banking, welfare payments and so on. Um, 
it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a fascinating side of this because it happens in a lot of countries and in a lot of conflicts, and this is the sort of thing you have, for example, the withdrawal of heavy weapons there to be pulled out uh, beginning, I think, Bridget, next Tuesday or somewhere like that, and then completed in two weeks. Uh, you then get to the nitpicking say, well, how far are they to be mm. withdrawn? Uh, and who uh, is in control of the of the withdrawal? Does it include, for example, the units of, of logistics, the com- command and control systems as well, because they can actually be built back in 24 hours? Um, the other part of it, which is you were raising about the, the Ukrainians, particularly interested in the control of border with Russia, that's going to be completed by the end of end of 2015, that's not very far away uh, at all. And a lot of this is going to have to happen in a hurry by the end of this year. It's all about this year. But if you look at it in the longer term, it's what's to stop a conflict beginning again. What happened in, in the last agreement in September, it, didn't really, it wasn't really a ceasefire. But I think I get the impression this time there's more... Um, there's, a, there's a greater belief that the Russians probably want this, if not as much, but they want it as well as the Europeans. Bridget, what's yours? Yes, I think I would agree with that. Um, I wasn't sure when this process started last week that President Putin was that engaged. He um, didn't come out and make any statement after he'd met Chancellor Merkel and um, President Hollande when they went to see him last Friday. After their phone call on Sunday, he said, well, he might go to Minsk, but it depended on some conditions. But it's really interesting that he, along with all of them, committed themselves all night. I mean, when have you ever heard of four heads of state staying up in these uncomfortable conditions for this marathon 16-hour session in order to clinch actually what's uh, quite quite a threadbare ceasefire, ceasefire agreement? But Mr. Putin came out, he's the only one of them, he came out to speak in detail to the press about what was in the accord. And there's been huge interest here in Russia. The American, the Russian television is full of it. There are talk shows going on at the minute debating it. It's of huge interest. The Russians would very much like this conflict to end. And that may have been one thing which was weighing on Mr. Putin's mind, popular opinion at home. But there's another thing, I think, which has come out of the text, which is interesting, and it, it, it does relate to the border. And that is the argument that the Russians have been using. It was raised to us, the press, by the Russian foreign ministry yesterday, was we can't seal that border between Russia and Ukraine immediately because this would isolate these um, separatists, this rebel Mm. area, and they've already been cut off by Ukraine. So the first thing that happens is Ukraine has to lift this economic blockade and reintegrate them into the country. Well, isn't that interesting when for months and months the Russians have been saying, we side with these separatists, we sympathise with them, that they don't want to be part of a Ukraine which is run by neo-fascists and who just want to Ukrainianise them and they have the right to have a more autonomous status, possibly a federal status in a looser Ukraine. Russia's not saying that anymore. That's not in this document anywhere. It's all about reinforcing the territorial integrity of Ukraine. And that might be quite an important concession from Mr. Putin. And you have to ask yourself why. And one of the reasons could be economic, that he doesn't want the burden of this region in eastern Ukraine on his country's shoulders, particularly at the time when the country is already in in an economic downfall. And uh, it would just be an extra difficulty for Russia to have to deal with them. Look at the bureaucracy of this, uh, who are sitting there. Um, you have this country, as I said, the biggest country in single country in, in Europe. 
you have the main focus in world opinion would be what is um, what is the West, so-called West, and in particular what is the Americans going to do and what, are, what is uh, President Putin going to do. It's a conflict between these two. And the second layer, you've got the Ukrainian government and the rebels. Now, supposing all this comes together, let's, let's suppose, and let's suppose you've sought out who, for example, uh, would monitor the border, who would make sure that it, it is a viable uh, a border to, to be able to cross without, without it meaning a load of weaponry came back across and that, that scared and everybody said, let's get in, in, into sort of conflict again. But then you've got the most intriguing lot, as far as I'm concerned. If I've been a rebel, let's call them that, fighting in that eastern region, taking a lot of hits and being doing it for close on a year, full out, do I reckon this is a good deal? I get a sense that unless somebody has an underlying agreement that, OK, we're going to carve off a chunk of Ukraine and give it to the loosely called Russian-speaking rebels there and say, right, that, hit, that is autonomy. I'm not sure if I am a rebel. I would think this is such a, a brilliant deal anyway, and I think I might even believe that Mr Putin is going cool on it. But we don't know what's gone on in the background, as you say there, Christopher. Uh, Bridget Kendall in Moscow, thank you very much indeed for your time today. Still to come, why do the media still get the reporting of veterans' mental health so wrong? And why is it so hard to get support if you're a veteran in Northern Ireland? This is BFBS. Sit rep. OK, to Syria now. This week, the Syrian president gave an interview to the BBC. Bashar al-Assad told Jeremy Bowen that he bears no responsibility for the humanitarian crisis engulfing parts of his country after four years of fighting against rebels and Islamist militants. Um, well, it's interesting, the wording of that uh, introduction, isn't it? I remember a year or so ago, they were all called rebels, and now we're very much delineating between the Islamist militants and the rebels. Christopher, what did you make of Bashar al-Assad? I, what I thought was quite astonishing is that you have this guy sitting there and, uh, I mean, he could have been a, a benign country doctor almost. He looked chilled, didn't he? He looked very chilled, he looked yeah, very approachable. He, he was like, and it was almost, uh, almost as if these questions... Um, let me just explain the answers to you. you know, <laughs> if you get a grip of this, you might go somewhere in the BBC. Some of the stuff... Ba- barrel bombing? Hmm. No, 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 not our square. Um, use of chemical weapons, CW. There's absolutely no evidence at all. There's a whole bucket of evidence mm-hmm. on both accounts, and a lot of it went into body bags as well. Yeah. And yet he could. He was in utterly, utter control. The other thing was the confidence, not just of what he was saying, but the confidence that what he was implying, and that is that uh, we are gradually getting on top. We are probably back on top. Um, oh, yes, by the way, we have had to kill a lot of our own people, including Alawites. Uh, Assad is an Alawite, mm. uh, and the Alawites are part of the Shia uh, uh, population of Islam. And this, again, you see, therefore, it's Sunni versus Shia, etc. None of that was explored uh, at all. But it was the. But I think overall, it didn't get us anywhere into, into thinking, is this doable? Are we really going to remove this man? And the big question that he answered, um, but wasn't asked, was this. Uh, I am the elected president of this country. 
and we were uh, there was a rebellion against a palace mm. rebellion against us. You see, now just as a, as a democracy, Western democracy, if you were sitting there and there was an invasion by rebels against the elected authority, wouldn't you support the electric, elected authority to to book that right, and then we can go on being who we are? And at the beginning of it, this green revolution, if you remember, in the in the squares outside, was as simple as that. But now the West, as he says or points out, you've been a bit hasty to sort of pin your hopes on the rebel groups who've actually come to nothing uh, mm. when I'm still here. Um, he's probably buoyed, I suppose, by what's happened with Islamic State. And we, we heard this week the US has been passing information to Syria. Uh, briefly, Krista, is that right? Yeah. I mean, what's been happening is that it's gone, via, for example, by the Iraq government. Now, what happens is this. Uh, it's not information like intelligence, and it's also it's not a sort of backstairs negotiations mm. about the possibility of peace, except that that is going on as well. I mean, people do not just sit there and say, well, we'll see, see what happens when the smoke clears. So we're negotiating with Assad, as we uh, speak. Oh, there, there are uh, negotiating with people who can get to Assad, and that's how these things work. You have sort of margins... People who know people. Well, yeah, you go to mm. you go to an international meeting, you go to the United Nations meeting, and you, you, you're attending a debate on something, and you don't actually sort of dis discuss it through the debate, but you certainly do in the corridors, etc. But the stuff that he was mm. talking about is that if there's going to be a, a strike, an airstrike or a drone strike, on, uh, let's say, an ISIS unit then through Iraq or whatever, he would know about it. And one mm. of the reasons he mm. would know about it, especially if it's going to an airstrike, is because you don't want the Syrian Air Force, which is very capable of mm. getting up and shooting down some of our guys. Some common sense involved there. Let's talk a little bit more about the fight against the Islamic State, though. And Britain is sending a 1,000 IED detectors to Iraq, along with uh, 30 British soldiers to give counter-IED training. They're going to be based in the Kurdish regional capital, Erbil, from the end of next month. And they'll also coordinate counter-IED training given by other coalition members to Iraqi government forces, apparently. Uh, but one of the country's Christian leaders has told BFBS that is not enough. Earlier this week, the Archbishop of Erbil, Basha Vorda, spoke to James Hurst. We need really professionals to come and accompany this uh, big battle because uh, we, all of us are aware, and the Iraqi government are aware of the fact that uh, we don't have a trained, yet trained yet Iraqi army to face Daesh. So I, I don't expect uh, that the, the British troops would be fighting in the front, but at least to really give the needed advice on the ground uh, to, to Iraqis that the, the best, that's about the way to fight such, such gangs of, of people who are really getting support and they have machineries. And We've already seen some British trainers sent. It was announced a little earlier today there'll be another, I think, 30 trainers along with counter-IED equipment. Is that enough? No, it's not enough. You have, on the other side, uh, Daesh with, with uh, huge... Uh, arms and uh, they are receiving help. They are they are getting weapons. Are you feeling let down by Britain? Uh, it's it's not let down because I cannot deny the that the humanitarian aid that the Britain and other international community have provided from day one. No, it's uh, they were there present. 
I, I have to say thank you for, for, for this and for the media which is covering and uh, following up but uh, as uh, on, on, on political side yes the Britain and other countries should really act uh, more effectively uh, about this way and to work with uh, with Jordan with Iraqi government with Turkey with Lebanon with with Qatar with the Gulf with Saudi Arabia with Egypt to work with the countries in the region really to I mean uh, tackle this this wave of, of crimes which is spreading Okay, and that was the Archbishop Bishop Volder speaking to James Hurst. Interesting words there. Let's move on to another topic now. Why is mental health in veterans so difficult to understand? Even sympathetic media seems to get it wrong sometimes. This week in London, the King's Centre for Military Health Research have been discussing exactly that. Well, joining us on the line now is Professor Nicola Fear. Nicola, welcome. Good afternoon, Tim. Good afternoon to you. And uh, what is it that the media get so wrong when it comes to veterans' mental health, would you say? Well, I think the media do a great job at raising the profile of uh, the health and well-being of not only our serving personnel, but also of, of our veterans. And that kind of obviously raises the public's interest and awareness of their needs. However, it's often the bad news message um, that catches the, the media headlines um, and that is the message um, that the, the public receives. Our research that we've conducted at King's College London has shown that actually the vast majority of those that leave service actually do pretty well. Um, they make that transition from service life to civilian life successfully that's not to say that you know it's it's a rosy picture for everyone and we and our research has shown that a small proportion um do um struggle um so i think it's important that we as researchers work with the media to make sure a more balanced view is presented and not just the more perhaps uh, bad news stories. It's difficult, isn't it? For, speaking as a journalist myself, you know, it, the story here is people suffering with poor mental health because of their experiences, perhaps. That's how, you know, me looking in at it sees, sees a story here. But how can we as journalists express the positive here? I think, you know, our research shows that there are individuals that do well. And I think it's about giving those kind of positive messages about military life and the impact that. Um, your kind of career in the services can have mm. um, not only when you're in the military but but when you leave um, I think if we don't portray those those perhaps more good news messages then the public may be left with this feeling that actually anyone that's ever served in the military may be kind of sad mad or bad mm. which is a phrase that, that we often hear um, and so that may that will be doing a disservice uh, to our current and ex-service personnel who actually, you know, have done a fantastic job when they're in service and, you know, should uh, be kind of applauded and congratulated um, when they leave. And if we portray this negative image, then they may not receive that kind of public recognition. And do you think, Nicola, that the negativity that, <coughs> excuse me, you, you say is, is being portrayed here can actually have an impact on people leaving the service, the service leavers themselves? Uh, do you think taking this to the next stage that people could get to the stage where they think, I ought to have... A mental health issue because I've been in the military. 
Yes, I think you're right. And we only need to look back um, to, to our colleagues in America and see what happened after the Vietnam War. Um, there was this kind of public perception that, you know, th these veterans were, were damaged. And, of course, the veterans then themselves kind of lived up to that um, kind of prophecy. And clearly we don't want the same uh, to happen over here. Um, but I think the important thing is if we do kind of portray these images, then perhaps those veterans that are in need, the ones that do need help and our support, they may feel even more stigmatised and so less likely to come forward. Um, so, you know, and therefore they won't receive the support and help that is available to them. A very good point about a catch-22 possibility. Christopher? Um, the, there, was some in, there was an interesting paper about four or five years ago um, by a guy called Caleb Robb of v University of Virginia. And he said that the one element that we're not looking at is the fact that when a lot of people, um, especially in a, in a, a non-conscript, non-drafted army, when they join, they are also, some of them are mentally disturbed. Mm. And it, it's not a question, if necessary, that the, the war platform did it to them, it exacerbated or whatever, but you have to look at the sort of people that might have joined the services anyway and, and, and their backgrounds. One thing I don't understand, the role of officials, the role of the MOT in terms of uh, the, the military hierarchy and ministers, but also officialdom uh, in, in this, the effort they put into it, it is almost as if that that sort of... The public loses interest in the military after that war platform mm -hmm. is, is dismantled. And that the, the Ministry of Defence and officialdom as well, they, they, they wash their hands of the whole thing. They say, we don't have to do all this, uh, make all these efforts, and so we, we rely on people like kings, we rely on, on, on the charities. And that seems to be a weakness in the whole treatment and understanding of what we're talking about. Is that a risk, Nicola, do you think, that now this Afghanistan war footing is, is being dismantled, that uh, we are potentially going the other way where we just don't report it at all? Well, I think, I mean, we, we did a study uh, where we collected um, the attitudes of the Brit British public towards the military, the conflicts that we'd been involved in, and also towards veterans. And the public, although they weren't necessarily supportive of our involvement in Iraq and Afghanistan, they were very supportive of our uh, serving personnel and our veterans. But we are concerned that as that you know as as you know the the memory of Iraq and Afghanistan fades from the public eye, um, will the support kind of wane, and therefore you know if the support wanes, will the kind of donations that we've been um, seeing to uh, charities such as Combat Stress, uh, the British Legion, and also Help for Heroes, um, will their support? Well, the public support for those charities kind of um, reduce over the coming years. And I think that's something that we, we need to think about and obviously work with the media to make sure that we can keep the profile of the military in the, in the public's eye. Absolutely. Professor Nicola Fear from the King Centre for Military Health Research, thank you for joining us. Now then, if you're a uh, former soldier living in Northern Ireland, are you getting a bum deal when it comes to welfare support? The Northern Ireland Assembly still hasn't formally recognised the military covenant, which means some people are missing out. Doug Beatty, he's a former soldier and author, now a UUP councillor in Northern Ireland. Uh, thanks for joining us, Doug. Hi there. Um, you came across a case recently, I gather, which highlights this problem. 
Yes, yeah, so only last week I was called to uh, an elderly lady. Um, she was 72 years of age. Uh, her husband, who was in the RAF, um, they'd been married nine years. She, he had died uh, suddenly while in service uh, in England. Um, she'd moved back to Ireland, had been awarded a pension, um, uh, and then she met somebody else. And then January this year, uh, she received a letter stating that the pension would be stopped immediately um, and she would not be receiving again because she'd moved in with somebody, um, even though the rules change come April this year. So all for the sake of, of two months, she was going to lose um, £600 a, a month. Uh, and she had absolutely nobody to turn to. She didn't know where to go. She lives in, a, in an area where she couldn't go to the Royal British Legion or any of the support networks. Um, and she didn't know where to go. And I came across her purely, purely by accident. Of course, that's incredibly distressing for the lady involved. As you say, that the rules are about to change, though, and I know that in the UK here, in, in England, Scotland and Wales, the Full Suspension Society have been working very hard on that. But in Northern Ireland, there are still blocks to help that people like her might need. Is it officialdom or is it the politics of Ulster uh, that are causing these problems and, and this lack of humanity, it appears to us? I think that there's a fair degree of both, but certainly the politics of Northern Ireland that we allow um, to, to, to force these issues along. The fact is that we don't have um, an armed forces covenant in Northern Ireland is an absolute disgrace. And, and you can, we can talk about the Assembly all we want. The armed forces is not a devolved function. This is something that needs to be forced uh, onto this part of the United Kingdom um, because we are part of the United Kingdom. Uh, and at this moment in time, we are missing out on the community covenant. £30 million set aside over four years, and Northern Ireland gets none of it. The corporate covenant, e-learning packages for GPs to support veterans' health care, we get none of it. £35 million from the LIBOR fines, We've only had 40,000 in Northern Ireland, and the, the, the educational scholarships, um, which are being paid for by the Covenant, we've had none whatsoever in Northern Ireland. And if you take that even further on, um, you know, for injured veterans uh, who, who, who uh, need IVF treatment, if you're from England, Scotland or Wales, you'll get it paid for for at least three cycles. In Northern Ireland, you'll get one, and if you want again, then you'll have to move across the water to get it done a second and third time. So, so there's a real disparity here. You're a councillor, Doug. What are you doing about it? Well, you know, I, I'm doing all I can do about it. I can stand and I can shout and I can speak to the Armed Forces Minister. I can come on here, I can make it known, and I can go and find these people um, uh, and support them as best I can. And I did write to the Veterans Agency uh, about this individual lady, and I have no complaints against the Veterans Agency. Mm. They're applying a rule here. The problem is they have absolutely no latitude whatsoever. So for the sake of two months, this 72-year-old woman is going to lose her war pension for life. Um, and if they had a degree of latitude, they would turn around and say, look, OK, the rules are changing in April. We'll let you have this. So all we can do is stand up and talk about it. And then hopefully um, our political parties, our ministers um, will, will fight our corner for us. Because at this moment in time, neither the Conservatives, Labour, Liberal, Greens or even UKIP are giving us a promise that they will instigate the Armed Forces Covenant throughout the whole of the United Kingdom. Christopher, tell me, Doug, um, if you look at it from a civilian point of view, you think, well, you know, loads of, uh, you know, loads of government, things that government should be doing. You also look at it, because all the tins get rattled, uh, well, a lot of good charity organisations, they are taking care where the government doesn't. But then I hear people say to me, oh, well, you know, big organisations like British Legion in Northern Ireland, they're not doing what maybe the public uh, uh, think they're doing. 
Uh, well, I, I've, got to, I've got to say I'm very disappointed in the Royal British Legion. I was the president of our local branch of the Royal British Legion and recently left. Um, uh, and they are not calling for the Armed Forces Covenant in Northern Ireland. They're saying they, we can make do with um, a so-called Veterans Support Forum, which is a makeup of the RBL, um, Combat Stress and, and, and SAFA. Whereas really what we want uh, as veterans in Northern Ireland is, is equality and parity. Now, if you, if you look at it from the many veterans in Northern Ireland, and, and bearing in mind, by head of population, we've got more veterans and service personnel than anywhere else in mm. the United Kingdom. But if you look at it from our point of view, you know, the, the UK looks like a very ho- cold house for, for Northern Ireland veterans who are scared to make it known that they are veterans because nobody's even willing to instigate uh, an armed forces covenant which, which will cover them. Just finally, I want to come back to the covenant and the signing of it. We've, we've covered a lot of these uh, in the UK. Very briefly, Doug, this all comes down to the unique demographic of politics, of communities, and of course the history of the troubles in Northern Ireland. That, that You just can't gather cross-community support for this. Is that the case? Well, you can, cross, you, can, you can gather some cross-community support for this. I mean, this is not ideal, and the problem that you have is, although the armed forces is not a devolved function, housing is a devolved function, as is education is a devolved function, um, uh, as is health care. Um, so therefore, they would have to be agreed um, at the assembly. But just an instigation of an armed forces covenant to give us the ability to stand in the assembly and argue for better rights. Um, so that service leavers, and you've just been talking about service leavers, service leavers who come to Northern Ireland to live and bring children with them will at least have it taken into consideration when trying to put them children into the school. Doug Beatty, I'm going to have to stop you there. We've reached the end of the programme. Thanks ever so much indeed for no, joining us on Red. Thanks very much. Nice to speak thank to you again. Christopher as well, thank you for joining us. We've had a packed show this week. There's been an awful lot to discuss. You can keep that discussion going as well. You can listen again to this if you'd want to. Um, or you can uh, Twitter us at BFBS Sit Rep. From me, Tim Cooper and Christopher, thanks very much indeed for listening. Until next we meet. Goodbye. News. News. Sport. Sport. And music. music. For the British forces. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.